Hi everyone, I'm Frank Rock and welcome to the From the Hack podcast for week 12 of the 2017-2018 curling season. This week we recap the first part of the season with Jerry Gertz of the Curling Zone. We catch up with Grant Hardy who recently led Scotland to victory at the World Mixed Championship. We continue on the road to Summerside with Adam Casey. We will play you a clip of an interview we did with Devin Haru of CBC Sports, who shares some of the curling stories he's witnessed over the past couple of seasons, and our Olympic trial series continues as we interview John Epping. All that and more this week, but first, Canadian musician and non-curler extraordinaire Jimmy Reed plays us into the podcast. Before we start with this week's interviews, here is our one-minute recap of the action from Week 11 on the World Curling Tour. At the Canadiens Women's Classic, Team Roth of the U.S. capped off an impressive week that included victories over five teams in the top 20 by defeating Team Hasselberg of Sweden 5-4 for the championship. Team Adine continued their strong play with a 6-3 victory over Team Drummond of Scotland in the final of the Masters Series of Chambéry in Switzerland. Team Liu of China also continued their strong play this season, winning the Arena Challenge in Gatineau, Quebec with an 8-2 victory over Team De Cruz of Switzerland. At the Medicine Hat Charity Classic, Team Botcher defeated Team King 8-2 in a Battle of Alberta for the men's title, while Team Chisholm of Weyburn, Saskatchewan defeated Team Barker of Moose Jaw by an identical 8-2 score in a women's final. And in events on opposite sides of the country, Team Purechuk defeated Team Nezevic 8-5 in the final of the Kamloops Crown of Curling, while Team Breen won the Lady Monctonian by a score of 8-1 over Team Smith. This week we continue the Road to Summerside series by interviewing another skip who will lead his team into the Canadian Olympic pre-trials in Summerside PEI in November. This week's guest is Adam Casey, who competed at the 2013 pre-trials as second for Team Gushu, and who happens to be a native of Summerside, despite currently playing out of Saskatchewan. Adam, as we record this interview, uh, your team has played in three events this season. You've qualified once and have a 500 record for the season. That being said, numbers don't always reflect how a team is playing. How would you characterize your team's season to date? Yeah, the first two events weren't exactly what we wanted, but I think uh, it is early, and I think we did plan the schedule with the with the goal of peaking peaking in Summerside. And I think uh, one advantage that that struggling has is that it generally forces you to to kind of think deep and kind of force yourself to to make the necessary tweaks. So I think losing the first couple events in September and not qualifying while frustrating isn't the, the end of the season. And then obviously I think a couple weekends ago in, in Edmonton we had a much better run before uh, bowing out in the semis, but I was very happy with the way we were playing and the way we were working as a team. So hopefully this weekend in Madison Hat we can uh, – continue to build on that and get ourselves ready for Summerside. Last season was your first one playing on your current team, and this season you've added Brock Montgomery at third. How is the revised lineup gelling so far this season? Like, Brock's been a fantastic addition, like, I think, like, from a third perspective, in terms of getting the most out of me, I think he's he's as good as anybody I've ever played with, and uh, I really think just having Sean and, uh, and Deuce at the front end kind of in the same role is really help and grow and that get that comfort for comfort level up for me and then I think it allows them to kind of focus on the the front end activities and I think that that switch to just kind of putting everybody in the positions they're in now has been really beneficial to our team and I think it 
kind of helps everybody know what the role is. You're the only member of your current team that has had experience in the pre-trials, having played second for Brad Gushu in 2013. How have you been able to leverage that experience to help your team prepare for this year's pre-trials in Summerside? Yeah, you know what? I think uh, the last pre-trials to me was was definitely a good good experience, and I was very happy with, with how I played at the event. And I kind of have, although it didn't work out for us, I think um, definitely just some some things. I think learning from playing big events with Brad definitely sort of paid dividends. Just just a matter of how to carry the team and how to kind of go with the ebbs and flows and to make sure you're you're having fun and you don't get like overwhelmed by the situation. But I think like having the benefit of having competed last year as a, as a team at the Briar is is also huge because I think that was that was the first time at the Briar. So I think having those sort of big event experiences in the way that that Sean and Dustin played was was fantastic. So I think that should be should be helpful having that in sort of the memory bank and being able to recall those those past performances and hopefully uh, channel them into success in the in the summer side. And I think, yeah, the, I think the pre-trials and the trials themselves are definitely different events, and I think you've seen different teams probably struggle more through them than, than maybe the Briar just because of the magnitude or something. But I think at the end of the day, it's about going out there and finding a way to to have fun and be comfortable out there and perform. To a certain degree, you're going to be the home team at the pre-trials in Summerside since I believe that you are the only team with strong ties to the island. How excited are you about playing in the pre-trials at home and what will you be doing to ensure that you don't get caught up in the distractions and time demands that often follow the local favorite at an event like this? Yeah, I'm I, I really, like like you said, I did, I did grow up in Summerside. I went to high school there. I currently work... Uh, less than 10 minutes away from uh, from the credit union place, so I'm very much uh, looking forward to it. And I think uh, played in a couple of players' championships there, so hopefully that will kind of be a similar experience in terms of knowing everybody that's around. But I think uh, for us, I think it'll be – it's always awesome whenever you get the, the opportunity to kind of have that extra level of crowd support. I think for us, in order to, to prepare, a couple of things that we did was we uh, – I kicked my parents out of their house for the weekend, so they they live uh, about 20 minutes away. So that way we'll be we'll be out of the out of the way of the city, and I think it'll be nice to not be. And everybody tries to be nice. Like Summerside's the kind of city that gets behind behind their athletes. It'll be fantastic to have that around, but just being away from the city and every being able to have some sort of some home meals and stuff, it'll be nice to not be be interrupted and be constantly reminded and be able to kind of just focus on some team things and do some things to take our our mind off because there's a lot of downtime and kind of have some some fun activities outside of the rink. And finally, Adam, what would it mean for you to represent Canada at the Olympic Games in Pyeongchang should you win in the pre-trials and then go to the trials and win there? Not even going to, like, stack up the odds against me on that. But, no, I think that would be a would be a fantastic run, and, and it's something that growing up as, like, a, as a person who played a lot of sports, like, you always want to represent your country and you want to perform at the highest level, and the Olympics is obviously the pinnacle. So I think just, just the amount of time and effort, I think, I think it's one of those things that you don't even put into appreciation until you get the chance to kind of look back and reflect. But I think it would be uh, a very honoring and humbling experience and kind of the just the type of moment that you'd, you'd live with forever and it'd be by far the single greatest achievement in sport or, or that I would have ever accomplished. And I think it would just be uh, tough to even say. Week 11 represents what is roughly the midway point of what is typically a very busy first half of the curling season. From the Hack invited Jerry Gertz of the Curling Zone to join us and discuss some of the big stories from the first 11 weeks of the season and some of the trends that he has seen so far in a season where many teams are focused on the Olympic qualifying process. 
Jerry, I wanted to start this interview by discussing the two teams that many in the curling community had their eye on entering this season to see if they could follow up on their victories at last season's World Championships and avoid the early season hangover that often occurs when teams have a breakthrough victory. How impressed have you been with these strong starts that both Team Holman and Team Gushu have had this season despite all of the additional distractions that come with being a Canadian and World Champion? I think uh, you put both those teams into the same category as kind of veteran teams. You know, they've they've all been through the ringer before and, you know, win or lose, you know, they come out and they bring that same level of, of play to the table. It's kind of interesting in curling. It's, it's a little bit different than some of the other, you know, major sports out there where, you know, winning that major championship takes you a month or two extra into the season. Whereas curling, everybody still plays pretty much till the end of the Champions Cup. So, you know, I, I think there's some uh, some or a lot less of that uh, potential for hangover because, you know, th- those teams actually end up playing a couple slams post-Worlds uh, too. So, you know, I think that's where you see it a little bit and, and, and uh, where the teams come out. But, uh, you know, when with uh, the one thing, though, you do see is is that these teams do get a target on their back. But I think Coleman is... Holman specifically is used to playing with that target on her back. You know, they've been one of the top teams in the world for many years now. And I mean, you look at Gushu's team, they've become so good. So, uh, you know, so strong that I think, uh, you know, just, just the level of play that they keep themselves at, you know, makes it possible to uh, continue showing such great results. Speaking of having a target on their backs, three of the teams that many curling observers pointed to last season when discussing teams that were having breakthroughs have had slower starts this season. Team Flax and Team Scheidegger on the women's side and Team Smith of Scotland on the men's side have yet to repeat the results they had last season. Do you believe that any of these three teams are having difficulty in adapting to having a bigger target on their backs when they are at events now? Yeah, I think those are the types of teams that specifically fit into that category as... as, uh, you know, now they're a known quantity. You know, everybody kind of preps a hair more for them as a little bit, uh, plays them a little bit tougher. And, and you're going to see situations where, you know, teams like that are going to get better games from everybody that they play against. Uh, tighter games, a little bit more focus. And, you know, for these teams now, it's a matter of, of continuing to up their game and and, uh, and pushing the limits as well. Scheidegger's team specifically, you know, they're – you know, they really have never played a ton uh, in a season. You know, even last year, you know, I think they played uh, something like six events prior to Christmas. And all of them were in, uh, I believe all of them were in Alberta. Or, you know, potentially, uh, I'd have to double check, maybe maybe a province over or so. But, you know, what? it's, it's a new uh, horizon for that team this year. And... Uh, so, you know, we're probably seeing, you know, some results of that. You know, I, I imagine as they get a little bit more comfortable and they get their legs under them, you know, that's the thing about curling is that, uh, you know, you can go through some rough stretches in a season and and turn it around pretty quickly when you find that find that game. So, uh, you know, I, I think you look at Flaxy, you know, there's definitely a, a similar case there where, you know, they've they've been pretty committed. They've put in a lot of work and the last few years and, and you're seeing the results of it. But now, you know, that Olympic pressure that, uh, you know, they're they're directly into the trials. It's something new for them. And, uh, you know, it, it's 
it, it puts teams in maybe a slightly uncomfortable position, a new spot, and uh, you know it, it's, it takes some time to adjust. And you know, Kyle Smith's team, same thing. You know, now they're the Olympic team, all the potential pressure that comes with them that they put on themselves. You know, it, it's an adjustment, that's for sure. One of the trends that many curling observers have mentioned so far this season is the increased level of play and success of teams from Asia on the World Curling Tour. Now, do you believe that these improved results are a sign of the progression being made in the elite programs of those countries over the past few seasons? Or is it a case of teams having an increased focus this season with the Olympics taking place in Korea? Well, you're seeing growth of the sport uh, coming in Asia very, you know, it, it's it's really the place where... Uh, there's huge potential for the game to, to, to explode. The TV numbers alone into that market are huge, bigger than even Canada can imagine hitting. You know, you talk about uh, the, uh, the, the last uh, Olympic pre-qualifying event uh, that was held in Germany in 2013. Uh, China and Japan had all their games covered. And the average, uh, the average viewership between I think it was something like uh, 17 or 18 draws was around 10 million a draw you know in Canada for the Briar and Scotty's finals we'd be we're you know we're getting a million to uh, 1.3 1.4 million so you know the expectation is is you're gonna see you're going to see uh, teams start to grow there too and support it and, and and chase that dream as well you obviously follow the sport very closely. What are some of the other trends that have caught your attention in the early part of this season? The amount teams are playing has definitely been interesting to follow. You know, you're seeing uh, several teams who are who are playing a pretty heavy schedule and, and consistently uh, doing what they do year in, year out. But you're also seeing, an, you know, a, a new trend where, you know, teams are playing a little bit less, focusing more on practice. And it'll be interesting to see you know, which which path is most successful come up, coming uh, in December. You know, we, we've we seen this with events as well, where we're getting a few less elite teams showing up to some of the major major events. We had uh, Portage La Prairie with the Canada Inns event uh, last weekend where uh, they, uh, you know, they had 20, I believe it was 24 teams, which is, you know, down a bit from previous years. And, and the number of elite teams that were showing up was definitely down as well. So, uh, you know, I think this is this is an Olympic year trend that, uh, you know, it, it's specific to teams targeting those, you know, that trials in December and, and wanting to not overplay and be rested enough. But, uh, yeah, I, you know, it was that was sort of a, a Jacob strategy in 2014 where they didn't overplay leading into the trials that year. And I think some other teams are matching that. And uh, it'll be interesting to see how that all plays out. Before everyone gets to Ottawa for the Canadian Olympic trials, there is the business of the pre-trials in Summerside in a few weeks. Can you identify one or two teams that you think have positioned themselves well to be successful in Summerside and possibly qualify for the trials in Ottawa? You look at the women's side and and there's quite a bit of depth there and experience depth. You mentioned Rock, Anerson, uh, Tracy Fleury's there, Sherry Madaw is there. You know, you really go on and on and on with names. Oh, Krista McCarville, <laughs> another one I forgot about that, uh, you know, you really know well. But I think a team has been playing really well the last uh, last two seasons now is uh, Jacqueline Harrison's team out of Ontario. And uh, I do, uh, you know, I, I, I know that team well, and I, I do some work with them on uh, analytics and other stuff. And, 
they've really taken to the information and they utilize it and they put it in play and and they've quietly climbed to 10th overall in the order of merit rankings they've made uh, playoffs at some slams they've made the uh, semifinals at the champions cup last year and you know i've become really impressed with with the way they approach the game and, and the way they approach their opponents as well and you know i think there's definitely some potential for them to uh to qualify out and based on where they rank they should be one of the favorites but uh you know i think they're certainly a, a forgotten name in that mix one of the teams that has surprised many this season is a team skipped by Colton Flash, who until late last season was playing second for Team Laycock. What do you make of the early season success by Flash and his new team? Yeah, you know what? I think there were a lot of questions about whether Colton could actually manage the skip role and whether he could be successful in that position. And, you know, I think that question's been answered uh, tenfold. You know, something that... Uh, that most people don't even realize is that Colton, I believe, won the uh, Saskatchewan Mixed uh, Championship, skipping a, a squad last year at the end of the year. So, you know, this success is kind of carried over at the end of the game. And, you know, sometimes, you know, it's that, that throwing that last rock. Sometimes you never know you're great at it until you start doing it. And, you know, I have a feeling Colton might fit into that category of the type of player who, you know, he, he doesn't overthink that last shot and just goes out and executes. And, you know, it's it's been a great start to the season for those guys. And it's exciting to see another, you know, young team sort of, you know, break through. You know, I know, I know when Colton made that move, he, he, he posted a, uh, something on his Facebook page where, you know, he talked about he wanted to kind of, you know, scale back a little bit, curl with some friends and have a little bit more fun in the game. And, and uh, you know, it, it's neat to see you know, that, that, uh, approach be successful for those guys. You know, it's a good group of guys there. You got the, the Marsh twins and, uh, one of the nap, uh, one of the nap guys, I believe Trent is the lead on that team. It'll be, uh, uh, Matt Lang will have to curl with the team at the, uh, pre-trials because, uh, the uh, spot belongs to the former team Corte. And as long as they maintain three of four from that lineup, they were eligible to, to compete at the pre-trials. So, you know, that's that's definitely a team I think uh has an opportunity to make some noise, but again, there's a you know, there's another long list of teams in the pre-trials that that uh, are going to be tough to get through. You know, you've got Morris, Team Morris, uh who's done it before, so, you know, experience factor there is huge. Gunnlickson's having a a solid season. You got Pat Simmons, of course, who's also playing really well. You know, I think some people had probably written off Glenn Howard after uh, Stu Sell's uh, Toronto event where they went out early. But, you know, their their play at the Canad Inns event is uh, great to see. And, uh, you know, I think you can't count out Cliffy either at this point. And, you know, moving Scott Howard to third seems to be uh, a pretty interesting move there too. And, and again, you know, I think that's something that's surprising some people, but, you know, you go back and Scott was a third in juniors. He played, uh, he was on the uh, Matt Cam team that lost the uh, Canadian junior final to uh, Braden Muscali. So, uh, you know, he's got some experience there too. And, and uh, you know, he's he's played in the elite game for, for several years now. And, you know, it, it might be time that he moves up to that third position. And, and uh, you know, it seemed to be a, a combo that worked really well for, 
for uh, Team Howard last weekend. With several of the top teams in the world taking a different approach to scheduling in this Olympic season, I'm wondering if you've noticed one or two teams that have been able to step into that gap and take advantage by getting good results and moving up in the rankings. Look on the women's side, uh, Darcy Robertson's team is having a, a, a great start to the season. They're not a, a, you know, what you would consider one of these young teams coming up. You know, they're all four players on that team have been playing on the tour for, uh, you know, for, for long enough, but they've really managed to put it together this year in the absence of, of other teams playing a huge schedule. They currently sit third overall in the year to date, uh, order of merit. They just got finished winning the Atkins, uh, curling supplies classic in Winnipeg. And, you know, they just keep posting strong results. So, you know, they were a team I think uh, some people took notice of last year from the uh, provincial championships in Manitoba where they beat Jennifer Jones in the semifinal before uh, losing to Michelle Englott in the final. But, uh, you know, I, I think there's definitely some – they're making hay and they're making good of their opportunity. So, you know, that's another team that's in the pretrials as well on the women's side. So, uh, you know, definitely can't discount them either. You go down the list a little bit. Jamie Sinclair's team of the United States has continued their uh, their development and, and shown uh, some great results this season after a strong finish to last year. You know, I, I think Carrie Anderson's team was a team that you wondered if they were done last year after a really tough season, but they've managed to bounce back and, and post some, some solid results as well. So, you know, you know, I think you're, you know, it's, it's on the women's side, it's, there's a little bit more parity in general. So, you know, you don't necessarily see as many standouts. And finally, Jerry, I wanted to end the interview by asking you a question that was a subject of a conversation at a local curling club uh, recently. With the increased number of events such as the Grand Slams, the upcoming Champions events in Europe, and the World Curling Federation's World Series of Curling, whatever shape that takes, combined with good events week in and week out on the World Curling Tour, do you see a day in the near future where players from four different Canadian provinces or perhaps four different countries might decide to form a team and focus exclusively on those events with the understanding that they would not be eligible for the Briar Scotties, the Canada Cup, the Olympics, the Europeans, and the Worlds, etc.? I think as there's more of these major events where teams can actually make make a true living at this, there is definitely a possibility of that. One thing to consider, though, the Briar specifically is probably the biggest cash field area. So for, you know, what these teams win by winning that event, you know, it's hard for them to even consider uh, not playing that when, you know, when when you look at the the prize purse by the time you're done, it's something like $250,000 in in prize. So maybe uh, down the road, you may see something like that happen as as these major championships start to uh, become a, a bigger deal. Uh, like like the World Series, like the uh, the Slams and other events that are coming down the pipe as well. But uh, you know, I think in Canada you may see that, especially with the way uh, you know you're seeing some changes with residency and how teams are are qualifying and all that stuff as well. So uh, yeah, I think I think there's still some time before we get there. But uh, yeah, that thought has definitely crossed the mind of some people that. Uh, that manage a lot of this stuff as well. This week from the Hack introduces the first in a series of interviews with members of the media that cover the sport of curling. Our first guest is Devin Haru of CBC Sports, who will be covering the Canadian Olympic pre-trials, the Canadian Olympic trials, and will also be in Pyeongchang for the 2018 Winter Olympics. 
Here is a clip from the interview where Haru explains why he believes Team Holman will be able to perform under the intense pressure of playing the Olympic trials in their hometown. I love the way they're approaching this because I tried to build up sort of this pressure-packed moment for them in, in my most recent interview. I mean, let's face it, Rachel Holman is basically going to be curling to wear the red and white to represent Canada on the biggest sporting stage in the world about 10 minutes, 15 minutes from where she grew up. It's a, it's a remarkable story, and they're owning it. The interview with Devin Haru can be heard in its entirety on the From the Hack website. Our feature interview this week, the second in a series with key individuals that will be participating in the Olympic trials in Ottawa, is with John Epping, skip of the sixth-ranked men's team in the world, and a veteran of the 2009 and 2013 Olympic trials. John joined us to discuss a variety of subjects, including the changes his team has made to their off-ice preparation. We also discuss the Olympic trials, and John shares his insights on current topics of interest in the world of curling. John, I wanted to start by asking you about your team's season so far. You've qualified in three of five events, but have yet to make a final so far. How would you characterize your season to date? You know what? It's probably not exactly the results we wanted so far. We'd like to uh, to have a win under our belt, um, or at least be in a be in a final by now. But you know, to make you know to make sure that we're in the in the playoffs in some of the events is is big for us. In, in past seasons, we haven't had the greatest starts, and it's always sometimes taken us a while to. Uh, to get going, um, you know, we've been close. There's been a you know a few shots here or there, and we'd uh, we'd easily be in in a couple extra semis and finals, um, along with uh, along with the qualifying games. Uh, you know, a couple weeks ago, we lost uh, the ABC final, and uh, you know, in the shorty early in the year, we were three and two, and, and kind of one one spot out of a, a playoff uh, playoff berth. So, you know, overall, it, it, the season had to, you know so far has had potential to be unbelievable, but you know, for us, I guess when you look at the results, it's kind of just so so. At the end of last season, you indicated in interviews that you did that after your team's loss at Provincials, you started working a lot more on the mental aspect of the sport. Now, results aside, how much of a difference has this increased focus on mental preparation made for your team both over the summer and at the start of this season? It's been a huge difference. Um, I had no idea, you know, we're working uh, working with uh, with kind of a sport or life life coach essentially, and it's been uh, it's been unreal for our team. We feel like we've made huge strides, um, and and that's why we actually feel I think you know the, if you'd ask the other three on the team um, too, I think we kind of feel really close to uh, to kind of getting on a big roll and, and things really coming together for uh, for the squad. John, your team has been in the top 10 in the world for the better part of this Olympic cycle, but aside from a terrific run that you made at the Canadian Open Slam two seasons ago, you haven't had what many would consider that breakthrough win. Now, the optimists will say that you are due, while the pessimists will say that you haven't been able to close a deal. What is the mindset and approach for your team heading into the trials, considering the fact that you've fallen just short at Provincials and in the Canada Cup over the past couple of seasons? I think for us, I think a lot of teams, and I've, because I've, this will be my third Olympic trials, you know, I've watched all of the teams throw all their eggs into this one basket for that one. And you, you know, you got to realize that there, you know, this week there are nine, or when we play the trials in Ottawa, there's going to be nine uh, top teams in the world at that at that event because they're all in Canada, well, most of them. So I think I think when you look at that, you got to be realistic and say, okay, you can have a pretty good week, play pretty well. And maybe go 500. So I think for us, the way we're 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 looking at it is that you know we're preparing as hard as we can for the for the the trials, but knowing that you know there's still the rest of the season to play. There's still lots of other events. Our main goal this year is just to have a consistent year, 
and and hopefully at that trial that we you know we have a good week and and things fall into we're not putting all our eggs in just to the one into the one basket because I've watched what it can do to teams. Um, I've also have I've three other guys that have never been to an Olympic trial. You know they've never had that experience. It's it's such a it's such a you know a crazy intense feeling and um, you know and and really only one of us is you know Matt Matt went to the Briar the one year with with uh, with Martin. So other than that, there hasn't been a lot of of national exposure um, for the rest of the guys. Like I mean, I guess we look at yeah, I guess you have to classify what's what's consider big wins too, right? For this, you know, this team to be in back-to-back Canada Cups is is pretty good. You know, you know, we've won a we've won a bunch of World Curling Tour events, and um, and you know, I think for the guys it was big winning that Grand Slam in uh, in York, and I think that uh, kind of really gave them the confidence to uh, to play well in the finals. But obviously, yeah, we've had some flips in the the provincials, and that's why we brought somebody in to help us kind of get over that that hump and and uh, you know be ready for the next time that we get to one. You have experience at the Olympic trials, having qualified in both 2009 and 2013, but the other members of your team have limited experience in that type of national event. What have you been doing to try and help all three of your teammates prepare to play in the Olympic trials? Well, I mean, it's, it's huge for me, especially as a skip. There's just these, there's just different distractions and things that go on during the week and just being prepared for those and just, you know, knowing, having that feeling of what it would be like when you do all your practices and your, you know, your pre-game stuff. And, and so just being aware and trying it, trying two different styles when you when, when I've done the last two times, um, it just helps you be your, or get a sense of what you thought worked well, what you didn't, and also you get a chance to look at what other teams are doing too, right, when they're at the, at the trials as well and, and teams that are having success and teams that are not having success. Um, so you can pull that from it. I mean, I, I was spoiled 2009. I played on a I played, or sorry, yes, and I played on a great team with um, with Wayne Madon, John Beat, Scott Bailey. So for me, I was surrounded by three veterans um, that really helped and, and pulled me through the week. And uh, you know, because I you know I had a lot of those kind of those aha moments of like this is this is pretty neat. You know, playing in front of ten thousand people, and um, you know, beside you know Furby and, and Martin and and Howard and Cooey, it was it was a pretty uh, pretty surreal experience. So. You know, for me, uh, you know, at the last one, you know, I had a couple of guys that had been before too, so we were kind of more the veterans there. And, you know, probably weren't as we weren't prepared for the last one as well as we could have, I think. And um, you know, and and you know, we we kind of could feel that. And and this one, I think, I'm really banking on what I've learned from the last two to know that uh, that you know we'll have a schedule in place and and we have all the right people, the right people surrounding us um, in our entourage or what we think is the right people surrounding us in our entourage to, to help us be ready for that week and uh, or this week. And, and I think that's going to be uh, be really key for us. And, I mean, I can talk to that. I mean, I got, like I said, i got three rookies on my team, so I can help them, you know, with some of my past experiences, what it's going to be like when you show up, you know, what the what the feel is like and, and you know, playing in front of the crowds like that. So I think that'll be uh, – I hope that'll be very helpful. And our coach, this will be our coach's – uh, third Olympic trials too he was with it the last two so I know you know he'll be really great for the guys now as much as players can attempt to prepare for the Olympic trials it's difficult not to be nervous at the start of that week how do you plan to guide your teammates through that first game or two when the nerves of playing in such an important event might be at their worst well you know it's funny we joke around on the team sometimes that I'm the dad on the team so I, I think that you know it's, it's going back to me just uh you know, just continually talking to them about, uh, you know, about being here, you know, this pretty cool, and letting them stand back for a moment and step back for a moment and, and really, 
take a look back at or, or take a look at everything around them and the experience. Like my goal for them is to make sure they go out and enjoy this experience. I mean, what other opportunity? There's not many opportunities. People get this opportunity to go out and entertain in front of you know how many people there will be eight eight to ten thousand people. So you know that's the biggest thing that I've emphasized to them is that I want them to no matter what to enjoy this week. And I'm hoping that you know, settle some of the nerves, not to put all the pressure on themselves. That's the one thing I've really tried to alleviate the pressure and because uh, I've watched other teams face it and crumble um, and get on each other. And uh, it, it's amazing what, what pressure can do to us. So I just think I, there's there's no way that I'm going to be able to stop those early butterflies, I think, for them. And I think it'd be, I think it'd be weird if they didn't have those. You know, I'm hoping I have them too because uh, you just relish every moment you get to play and in an Olympic trials, it's it's pretty pretty neat to be uh, to be a part of, and and you can lose a couple of games, and that's what I, one thing I've said. Like, you know, we start off against Brad Gushu, right, number one team in um, you know in the world, and you know we can start oh you know start over there, and then you could lose to the next you know the next maybe it's the second place team you play, and then the third place team in Canada. All of a sudden you're zero three, right, and you still have to play number four or five and six in Canada. <laughs> so I mean that's very possible, but luckily for us, we put ourselves in. Uh, in a couple of holes in the last Canada Cups. You know, we were 0-3 in the last Canada Cup with our back against the wall, and we won three in a row to make a tiebreaker and, and you know, and, and won the tiebreaker, and then, yeah, we did lose the semis. But, you know, our team is a, is a never-give-up kind of team, and I and I definitely know that that won't deflate them if we get, you know, ever got off to an 0-2 start or 0-3. I don't, uh, I know that they'll, uh, that they'll fight hard and, uh, you know, still, you know, we'll still hang in there until, uh, until we're, we're told we're out of the event. One of the common themes that you hear among elite teams nowadays is how they follow a process in the lead-up to major events or even for an entire season. Without giving up any state secrets, what does following the quote-unquote process look like for team mapping? You know, for us, it's uh, you know, we've built some templates uh, that you know that we're, we're looking at and we're working around for as far as you know conversations, shooting, and uh, you know communications. And there's just a you know there's a few templates that we've laid out there, and and uh, you know we're we're continually going back to those through you know checking in on those you know in middle events after games and you know in a few weeks few weeks at a time we go back and we're always looking and, and trying to alter the template or, or at least making sure we we stick to it and and to us you know especially going into there's a there's a couple of grand slams coming up before the uh the trials we're really using those just to to really test to see where we are in regards to uh you know to those templates and uh that we've built so for us we'll we'll you know, the last few weeks will be just to make sure that we're kind of following everything that we've that we've talked about and that we've committed to and that we've held each other accountable for. And as long as those are all in place, I mean, we just got to let kind of the, the you know the chips lay where they are come the come the week of the trials. You've been coaching Team Galusha out of the Northwest Territories for a couple of seasons now, and I'm wondering if coaching has provided you with some insights that you hadn't expected going in. Are there things you now pay attention to with your men's team that you might not have picked up on had you not coached a team and watched from the stands? Well, definitely, and you know what? The I think I have a much more appreciation for our own coach because uh, you know it's it's way harder to sit behind uh, the bench and, and watch uh, the team go. You have no control over any of the results, right? So it's uh, you're basically a cheerleader and and, and trying to prepare them and, and be there for them as as much as you can. And I think that's probably what I've uh, I've learned the most is maybe just some of the things to the right things or the right things that players that want to hear and. You know, it's it's definitely made me introduce some things from into maybe into our team that I that I think that could be beneficial. But 
at the end of the day, every team operates differently. Every team um, is differences, and especially too when you look at some some of the female game compared to the male game. There's just some differences there that uh, you know that don't go kind of hand in hand. But I think overall, I have a much more appreciation for my coach, and I and I can't believe uh, I find it way I find it way harder sitting behind the bench and uh, and watching. John, my next question is only indirectly curling related, but I think it's an important part of your narrative, and it touches on a subject that, to me, we should be so far past as a society, but that's not the case, at least not yet. Now, last season, you wrote an editorial for a national newspaper in which you indicated that you are gay. You've touched on this before, but I'm wondering if you could repeat and share how much support you received from the curling community after your announcement, and perhaps reiterate the reasons why you felt it was the right time to go public. I've got a lot of support. Everybody was, you know, was, you know, the curling community has, has always been there for me and, and uh, very supportive through this. And uh, you know, always, always had, let's say, my back if, uh, you know, if need be. But I think, you know, the, the maybe what I got a lot of in some comments was, you know, I don't understand why we have to at this day and age announce this, or you know, why can't you just be a, a gay guy? Who cares if you're gay? It, you know. I, I wish it was like that, but we're still in a, I think, in a time where we need to make announcements like this. Um, there's still a lot of a lot of people out there that are having troubles, and I can tell you, I've got a million messages after these articles from other people that, you know, thank you for for doing this. This is helpful. They've had, you know, a, a tough time, or, or even a couple people curlers that have said that have said that they've struggled telling. Um, you know their teammates and, and asking for advice on how to do that. So yes, I wish we lived in a world where yeah, it, it doesn't matter, uh, you know, gay or straight. But it uh, it's needed to be said because it's going to help. It, it helps somebody. And that's that was my goal with the whole thing. If I could just help one person, then it all me. You know, it was all worthwhile for me. And and um, you know, and that's and that's why we do it. So I've got a few quick fire questions before I let you go. If your team was headed to the pre-trials, can you name one or two teams that might be under the radar a little, but that you think can do some damage in Summerside? Uh, I think Simmons could uh, could definitely do some some damage. Those young kids can uh, can really uh, can really play. And I think maybe um, don't be shocked if like a, a Balsden from Ontario or um, you know a team like Bice can get uh, they can they can play too and, and get hot. They'll definitely fly under the radar. If I had told you last spring that Colton Flash and his new team would have had better results two months into the season than Team Laycock, would you have believed me? No, I wouldn't. I wouldn't have thought that success came, would come that early. You know, I mean, Flash is a great player, and uh, and it always has been. But uh, you know, I didn't know the rest of his team that well, so uh, I'm, I'm surprised I've had this much success so far. But uh, and hey, we bought them in the Calcutta last weekend in Porsche, so I can't believe they didn't make the playoffs for us. No. The World Curling Federation recently announced the creation of the World Series of Curling, which, in addition to the Seven Slams, the upcoming Champion Series events in Europe, the Canada Cup, the Provincials, and in some cases the Briar and Scotties, will mean that the elite teams, specifically the ones in Canada, might end up playing as many as 18 events in a season. Now, do you feel that it's time for the quote-unquote powers that be to get together and create a schedule that will allow the teams to play in these events, at least in most of them, while also providing sufficient rest periods for the elite teams to avoid some of the overuse injuries that are becoming more common in curling? Yeah, 100%. I think I think they. I think we all need to work together to find a schedule that works and, and, and fits. And you know, it maybe it's it maybe it just becomes like golf, where you, you know, you pick certain events on the tour that you're going to play, and maybe you can guarantee so many top teams or different teams at so many certain different events, and uh, you know, so we can help out with sponsors and, and making sure that uh, that there's bums in the seats as well. 
It seems that all of the participating players enjoyed the Everest Challenge at the beginning of the season, but how difficult was it to have your A game so early in the season while adapting to players you've never played with before? I mean, competitive was was tough. I mean, just because, you know, you're used to your own teammates, but but you know what? It, when you're only playing with a team uh, for one weekend, it's all a honeymoon stage. So everything is, uh, you know, everything usually works really well. And, and what an awesome, unbelievable start uh, to the season. I, I think, the, you know, hopefully they keep that event going. I think all the players had an absolute blast. I thought the games were were, were pretty uh, competitive. And, and kudos to uh, to Jamie Barassa for being able to make, uh, make ice when it was 25 degrees in, inside the arena. And finally, John, can you explain how a curling team managed to sign a major sponsorship deal with the History Channel? Well, I am very lucky that my... Uh my uh, my best friend of uh, of you know 20 years his uh, his wife works uh, worked with the history uh, channel and was able to connect me to some people and and I went in and, and kind of sold them on the idea and they thought it was uh, you know their they thought their demographic was you know curling and history went together so um, you know it, it, it and ever since they've actually loved their relationship and and as have we and uh, you know they're great supporters of uh, of team Epping. And that does it for episode 12 of the From the Hack podcast. My thanks to all of our guests. Join us next week for more interviews with some of the key personalities from the world of curling. In the meantime, don't forget to follow us on Twitter at From the Hack, and also follow us on Facebook and Instagram, and also subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. I'm Frank Rock, and this is From the Hack. <laughs>